On this edition of the Scott Thompson podcast with Scott Radley standing in for the other Scott today, we're going to be chatting about the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce's plan. They have a a blueprint out for how to get Hamilton's economy back up and running again. We'll be talking about what are some of the things that are in there. We're going to talk about charities. The We Charity is in the middle of a bit of a scandal now. Does this affect other charities? Is this going to make it more difficult for charities to raise money? We hope not. And an old friend of Hamiltonians, someone who, if you've lived in this city for any period of time, you probably think of him as a guy from CHCH once upon a time, even though he's done a few years with Leafs TV more recently. Paul Hendrick joins us to talk about the Leafs and about old CHCH and even Dick Beto's missing fedora. Stick around for that one. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Buenos dias, mis amigos. Scott Radley in for Scott Thompson on the Scott Thompson Show this Tuesday after a long weekend. Hope all is well. Might want to save a little of that applause for next week when Scott Thompson returns. Scott Radley sitting in for Scott Thompson for this reduced, shortened, protracted, no, that's the opposite, week. Anyway, first up today, though, the Chamber of Commerce has come out with its you know, I would like to call it a manifesto, but that's that when you hear manifesto, now you think of the Unabomber. So that's, that tends to have sometimes now a bad connotation. That's, it's not a bad connotation with this at all. It's their economic blueprint, they're calling it, for how the city of Hamilton should attempt to get started again and get rolling after we've basically shut so much down as a result of this pandemic. Well, what are they suggesting? How do we get the city economically rolling again? Bianca Caramento is the Manager of Policy and Government Relations with the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce. She joins us now. Bianca, thanks for doing this today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having us, Scott. Uh, Look, this is a timely thing because uh, certainly when we look around the city, we know how many different businesses have been affected and how much has been shut down and how important it is to try and get back up and going again. I mean, Hamilton, a lot of people would believe Hamilton had some momentum leading into this yeah. economically. Um, let, let's start on a very broad way here. Um, wh- what beyond what they're doing or just even with what they're doing, what should governments be doing at all levels to help businesses in this area? So in the economic blueprint for recovery, we lay out both long-term and short-term options uh, to for all three levels of government to consider uh, to sort of get the economy moving. But we're focusing here in Hamilton. So short term, some of the immediate needs that businesses that we've heard from businesses have been along just basic things like supplying PPE. So PPE is an expense that a number of businesses hadn't expected that they were going to have to be paying for in their day-to-day operations. And that's a new expense on top of everything else that they're already doing. So in order to be able to secure their PPE, Uh, while maintaining a safe environment for their workers and their customers, helping businesses being able to supply that PPE at a cost that won't overburden their business would be one measure that the three levels of government could take right now in the short term to be able to help businesses moving forward as the reopening takes place. The report, uh, you mentioned in the report, uh, PPE, that's, and that's a huge one. Again, not only because of the cost, but even just getting it for some people, it's difficult to be able to do that and you can't really open without it. So yeah, absolutely. Um, your report also talks about the federal government perhaps should extend CERB, which I know they're not going to, or at least they're talking now about moving people into unemployment, but uh, right. CEWS, CEBA, uh, other ones, the, fe- the province should forgive deferred payments. Uh, the city should delay property taxes and lower some license costs, and there's other things there. Um, I suppose this is going to be a recurring theme as we talk, but um, how do we pay for that? How do the governments pay for that? Because, as you know, right now they are all, all levels are swimming in deficits. How do they, it's important, but how do they cover those costs? I think the answer is different depending on the level of government that you're speaking to. So in the report, we highlight the fact that there needs to be some sort of support for municipal governments. Municipal governments can't legally run a deficit spending. It's, it's, it's not within their mandate to do so. So that's why you've seen a number of municipalities, Hamilton included, request that the federal government help support their budgetary needs. And the province and the feds have responded to that call with about $4 billion in funding for municipalities in Ontario. Whether or not that's going to be sufficient 
to be able to pay for the deficit and the budget shortfall that we see in Hamilton and across Ontario is questionable. So if they received a total of $4 billion, and to put it into context, Toronto's deficit shortfall is around $1.3 billion, and that's one city alone, right? So whether or not municipalities will get enough money to be able to to suffice the budget that they're currently seeing as a result of COVID-19, it will require federal and provincial um, support. When it comes to the provincial budget, as well as the federal government, when it comes to where they will find the money to be able to, to pay for these in the long run, at the end of the day, if we don't put money into our economy to create that stimulus and ensure that businesses come back and create further jobs, further tax revenue, it's going to be even harder for governments to recoup their revenue if they aren't trying to stimulate the economy. So that has to be sort of the first step prior to trying to figure out how to recoup uh, and what that might look like. Right. So in other words, uh, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I mean, the yeah. private sector does run the country. It, it, it not runs the country. I don't mean it that way. It, it fuels the ec- the economy for the country. You, you, If you have a healthy private sector, you can then have a healthy public sector. You need to have the private sector going. Absolutely. And it's almost sort of like a chicken and the egg situation here, right? Because so on one hand, private sector, public uh, and and not-for-profits, they require that government investment, but the government requires businesses and the not-for-profit sector to be up and running and producing goods, producing tax dollars and tax revenue in order to be able to continue to pay for services. So it really is a, a cycle between the two. And that makes a ton of sense. And I think anyone who doesn't understand that is intentionally trying not to. We need to have the private sector going to create the the money so that we can pay for taxes and pay for the services and the programs and everything. Now, when we move on, it, it, again, in the uh, in the recommendations and your economic blueprint plan, one of the big ones, and this is one that, of course, uh, in this city, uh, three magical words that always inspire loving conversations among everybody on all sides of the aisle, LRT. <laughs> we, oh, yeah. we know, yeah, we know that one. Um, one of your recommendations for long-term recovery is to get going on the LRT. And I'll go back to my question, um, knowing that the province has said they're in for a billion and as part of that 4 billion that you talked about from the federal and provincial government, I think a billion was going to be put towards transit, although not necessarily all in Hamilton. And we've heard now the LRT is a $3 billion project and our city is 60 million, something like that in a deficit. Again, it may be one of those ideas that has a lot of merit, but how do we pay for it? So in this case, this is where we look at infrastructure stimulus spending that the federal government has already hinted that they're looking to do, in addition to the support that they've provided towards municipalities. So a lot of that transit funding that you cited earlier is really to help out different transit bodies throughout municipalities across Canada to be able to deal with the fact that they didn't have the ridership that they're used to during the pandemic. So it's to help sort of get them out of the hole, whereas infrastructure spending would be in addition to that. So Minister McKenna, uh, the infrastructure minister federally, has already made very clear that should the provincial government uh, approach the feds for funding for the Hamilton LRT in particular, she is all year, ears. She's just simply waiting for them to, to reach out and make that, that known. Um, we expect to hear some form of, of uh, decision based on the task force's recommendations that's sort of sitting at the provincial level right now in September. Uh, so we're hoping to see this project get picked back up again. Contrary to any other sort of infrastructure spending project here in Hamilton, when it comes to transit, there's very few projects out there, and I would venture to say across Canada, where you have all the plans already made, all the environmental assessments already completed, all the properties almost entirely purchased already. So this is really just a shovel-ready project, which is exactly the sort of infrastructure spending the federal government would likely be looking to do post-recovery. Bianca, some though have said uh, as a result of COVID, our lives and the way we do things have changed so dramatically that we may in the future be seeing a lot fewer people commute and a lot fewer people need public transit because they can work from home now. Does it change anything at all? If Do we need to restudy this thing before we dive in? I, I know it's infrastructure and I know that we can have the, the benefit from that, but do we need to look at this again as whether or not it, it works for us now? Well, I think partially some of some of those conversations about how much there's going to be an impact on overall demand for transportation might be slightly overstated. So yes, you may not have 
have to uh, commute as often. It depends on your job, quite frankly. So if you're in Hamilton, if you're working in manufacturing, you can't work from home, as an example. If you're working at McMaster, you can't work at home. Um, that said, there will be an impact, no question. But the idea of any sort of transit project is that you're not just responding to current demand, you're responding to future demand as well. So as we see further intensity and development in the downtown core of Hamilton, there will be that greater demand for transit ridership, whether that's going to work or whether that's just going to a local shop uh, down the street on King, as an example. So I think while the point you raise is, is an interesting one, I'm not sure it devalues the proposition for LRT. The um, Your report also says that um, it says we are committed to working with the city of Hamilton and the province to secure additional LRT funding from the private sector and or the federal government. Uh, you, you've, yes, clearly the federal government has expressed some interest with Catherine McKenna. What about private sector? Is Are there companies out there that are interested in contributing or paying for part of the LRT? It's my understanding that that's the case. So there are a number of, of uh, developers in and around the core who have already invested in properties surrounding the transit corridor uh, that have a vested interest in making sure that the project moves forward. So I would imagine that should this project be back on the table, we'll be able to hear exactly who would be willing to put dollars and cents towards the project uh, and just how much that contribution might be. Uh, there are a number of other things in this report, uh, really interesting. And by the way, before we're not done, but I would encourage people to go to the Chamber of Commerce website and look this up. It is It is an interesting read for sure. One of the other things that's in there is um, that you, the chamber, is throwing its support behind the 2026 Commonwealth Games. Um, again, there are a lot of people who think this could cost the city a lot of money. I know the organizers have said it's going to be largely private sector or heavily private sector. Um, why would the Commonwealth Games help us get back on our feet? Right. So I'd start by saying that until we have the full proposal in front of us, I don't generally try to judge things until I have full information to begin with. So until we hear sort of the details, I believe on August 10th, I sort of hold back from making those judgments as to whether or not it's going to be a huge uh, financial burden on any particular group. That said, when it comes to the Chamber's uh, support for the, the Commonwealth Games, it is dependent on the federal government uh, stepping in as well as the provincial government stepping in to provide that support in addition to the city. Um, for us, it's a matter of there's, there's a number of things that, that led to our support. So for one, we see a, a huge need for things like affordable housing. And it's been made very clear to us that through this Commonwealth Games, there will be the creation of an athlete's village that will later be provided as a source of affordable housing for Hamilton. Prior to COVID, prior to anything, uh, any sort of major recession going on, Affordable housing was a need that existed in Hamilton, um, and it will continue to be a need that, that we need to fill. So the affordable housing alone is, is a big uh, aspect of what we support. We also see the investment and the economic uh, impact of having a number of both tourists and athletes in our city for that time. We see value in, in uh, any sort of procurement model that might take place as a result of the game. So I'll give you an example. Uh, during the the Vancouver Olympics, one of uh, the assets of that game was that um, there was a local procurement. So they needed wreaths and bouquets of flowers for the athletes. They made sure that they sourced it from a local women's group um, within Vancouver during the Olympics. That sort of local procurement model is something that we've certainly pushed for as a part of the Commonwealth Games, and we'd love to see that economic impact and those dollars spent within the city of Hamilton. Uh, so for those reasons, uh, we're largely in support of, of the games insofar as we see that federal and provincial support as well. I have 30 seconds left here and I, I don't want to end it on a down note. So I want you to, uh, to keep us positive here, but um, what if we don't get this? I mean, look, we know, again, we know that the governments are trying right now to figure out how to cut costs because they're all spending like crazy. What if they all say, I'm sorry, we don't have the dough. What, what happens to Hamilton's economy in the recovery here? Well, so our entire economic recovery blueprint has a number of different facets to it, far beyond the Commonwealth Games. So it's not, this isn't the linchpin to our economic blueprint and our economic recovery. Oh, no, I'm uh, talking about the whole process. I'm talking about the whole blueprint. If, if they say, I'm sorry, these things, LRT, Commonwealth Games, all these things, if we can't do this, if there's just not money to spend, then what? 
then frankly, the Hamilton Chamber and, and our advocacy hasn't been doing our job properly. So we're already in conversation with different levels of government for each and every one of our recommendations. And we wouldn't put them in the blueprint if we didn't think that there was a practical, uh, feasible way for, for this to get to get passed in some way, shape or form. Whether or not we get each and every recommendation enacted by different levels of government is a different story. Uh, but we certainly think that the recommendations that are included in this document are something that are feasible, despite the fact that there are restraints on on government spending. It is, uh, as I say, I encourage people who are interested in the goings-on of this city and the operations of this city to go to the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce website and take a look. The document is there. It is a, it's an interesting read. It'll take a few minutes, but uh, worth your time. Bianca Caramento, Manager of Policy and Government Relations for the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce. Really appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this today. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. There is uh, the story of the... Um, of the we charity thing just keeps going on because we keep hearing new things. And there was a, a, a piece in the national post this weekend that was pretty telling. And, you know, here's the difficulty with this story because it involves politicians. It is inevitably and intractably political. And if you are a supporter of Justin Trudeau of the liberal party, chances are you probably believe this story is a giant nothing. If you are not a supporter of the prime minister or his party, you probably think this story is a very big deal. But here's the thing is these stories are always best handled when we can somehow step back for a second and say, okay, let's, let's, let's remove the politics from this and just look at the actions. Howard Levitt wrote a piece in the Financial Post and the headline was, if Trudeau and Morneau were running a corporation, Conflicts of interest in we case would have led to their dismissal. Howard Levitt joins me now. He is an employment lawyer. Howard, thanks for doing this today. Well, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. You know, I, just leading into this, I said this I- inevitably becomes a political story that you take a side on this based on your political preferences. And we're hearing from a lot of people, oh, you know what? There's nothing to see here. There's nothing to this story. I don't agree with that. And and I think that most people, honestly, if this had been a Stephen Harper story, many of the people who were saying that there's nothing to see here would say it's a very big deal. There is something here. Oh, it's 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 a massive it's a massive story, whether it's, I mean, the only real issue is whether it's corruption or incompetence, but it's certainly at least incompetence and a kind of incompetence that gets people fired. If they were, if they were a CEO and CFO of a, any company in this country, whether profit or nonprofit, they'd be fired in a heartbeat by the board. And what, and the story that we got last week after the prime minister testified, I'm not sure he helped because his de- defense of himself was, well, I knew that it was going to be seen as a conflict. I pushed back a little bit and eventually just gave in and did it anyway. That says then, okay, I knew it was wrong and did it nonetheless. I'm not sure that defense, if you are running a corporation, that the board is going to say, oh, well then, okay, as long as you knew it was a problem, then we're okay. Can I help you through this? this? Because there's two issues. I'm going to speak as a lawyer. Sure. Because it's ultimately legal issues. The first one is, if you act in a manner in which you're conflicted without disclosing it, that's cause for discharge. His family was getting hundreds of thousands of dollars. Let's face it, his mother's a bit of a niche. She's hardly somebody who gets $300,000 in speaker's fees unless you want to buy off the prime minister. And his brother's not much better, if, if, if it's even as good. So... Acting in a conflict is cause for discharge. Secondly, so even voting in favor of it is cause for discharge. Secondly, you've got to recuse yourself. You've got to not vote at all. You got to declare, I've got a conflict. I can't vote. And I can't influence anybody else. When he says, I knew I had a conflict, <clears throat> and yet not only did I recuse myself, I actually voted, he's admitting his awareness of the conflict. And the courts have said in conflict of interest cases, the rule of Caesar's wife applies. It not only must be pure, it has to be seen to be pure. And this isn't pure, and it's not seen to be pure. And any company president who voted for, for some project that has benefited their direct family members and didn't disclose it and voted in favor of it will be fired in a heartbeat. So that's and the I, first issue. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, please continue. If that's the first one, go ahead, continue. That's issue one. And here's the next issue. 
and heads should roll for this, maybe even more than the first. In any major project or a purchase of a business or anything where money's on the line, especially a billion dollars or 912 million, there's something called due diligence. And anybody in business knows about due diligence. There's some really, due diligence goes on for weeks or months generally, and it's extensive. But in the first day, you ask the following questions. How much experience does this organization have in a project like this? Well, according to the Chief of the Privy Council, the answer would have been none at all. And if they don't, you don't don't proceed with them. Second question, has there been any change at the board level recently? If so, and you find out, yes, there have been lots, massive change. The whole board's been reconstituted. Then you ask why, and you ask for permission to speak to the board members. Now, they have a duty of confidentiality, so you get consent from the company for them to um, essentially waive that confidentiality for the sake of the discussion with the government in this case. And if they say, oh, no, no, I won't let them talk to you, I won't let them tell you the truth, then you pass, because that's too big a red flag. Well, that never happened. The next question he asked is, how financially stable is the organization we're investing a $900 billion project in? Well, we now know they were tremendously unstable financially. They had all kinds of economic problems at the time. and laid off hundreds. We're in real economic predicaments. Well, that would be the end of it. The next question, what are its bank covenants? You find out what the bank covenants are. Is it in breach of any of the bank covenants? If it is, that's the end of, the, that's the end of doing business with them. Well, of course, we know they were in breach of their bank covenants. How have the funds been used in the past is the last obvious question you ask. If the answer is, well, they're putting all their money into real estate, not actually to helping people in Africa, you know, they just say, okay, this is not the charity of choice here. That is basic due diligence. And so if the civil servants didn't do it, they should be fired. And if they did do it, and they got these answers and recommended anyway, they should be fired. If they got those answers and passed them on to the prime minister, he should be fired. And if they didn't ask those questions, they should be asked by the prime minister and, and finance minister, did you ask these questions? And if the answer is no, then make sure those questions are asked before we proceed. Howard, here's what drives me a little bit nuts about this. And I suspect a lot of other people too. And that is, you have used the phrase public service a couple times. Service, public service, serving the public. Yet the servants to the public don't now seem to be responsible or beholden to the same laws that the rest of us are. Well, that's the problem. That's my first point on conflict of interest. Those are the laws. And when you ask, if you were to ask me yesterday or a week ago or a month ago, what are the two easiest things to fire someone for? I'd say one, some sort of fraudulent activity and two, conflict of interest. You know, there are much more powerful causes in law than disobedience or incompetence or things like that requiring a bunch of warnings. This kind of stuff you fire them for first defense without warning. Let me ask you, this is a theoretical question. You're a lawyer. Uh, there's going to be times when you are defending a client who potentially has been accused of conflict of interest. Um, you, your client is now being, uh, has been dismissed and you're fighting for him. Any chance you make the case to the court that says, look, um, our prime minister and finance minister, the two most powerful people in the land were not penalized or accused or found guilty necessarily, not yet anyway, of conflict of interest. How can my client then, he's only following the, the example that was set by these two most powerful people. Well, I'm not sure if that will work before court, <laughs> because the bottom line is there's nobody to fire the law them, is the law. The, except the law is the law, and the electorate is who votes out the prime minister, not, not a, a board of directors would fire them. I mean, the party members, I get the party... The members of parliament, I guess, could elect a new leader within their ranks. That's not going to happen because of party discipline, but it wouldn't be a very powerful argument. No, but it, look, are you right? Does it set a tawdry example to the public and to the business community? Of course it does. Does it set a bad example for employees? Think if they can get away with it, I can too? Sure. Does it create a lassitude and low standards in our populace? It does. All of that is true. It's, uh, it's an article worth reading. Howard Levitt, it's in the National Post. If Trudeau and Murnau were running a corporation, conflict of interest in we case would have led to their dismissal. Howard, I really appreciate you taking the time well, today. Thanks for doing know, this. Trudeau, I'm, I'm a Hamilton boy. I grew up in Hamilton, went to Westdale. Just so you know. Th- there you go. See, right across the street from the home office here, there's, uh, there's Howard's background. Appreciate it, as always. Thanks for doing okay. this. Bye-bye. Thanks.
Okay, so uh, we, we've got that situation going on. But there's a second situation that, quite frankly, uh, let's leave the politics out of this for a moment, is a far, far more important and far, far, more, far, far more troubling issue with this whole story. And I'll tell you what it is. It is the idea of charities in this country potentially being affected by this. Because, you know what, we are a, we are a, uh, a responsive people. We, we live in a society that sees something and goes, well, then I can't do that. If that's happening, well, you know, and this is, this is what happens. Well, here's what happened last week. Now, there have been a number of sponsors that have turned to, to the WE charity and said, we're out, we're done. We, we're no longer contributing. Here's what fi- uh, Education Minister Stephen Lecce had to say last week about the WE charity. We're very concerned about the allegations and at a time when families are working harder and taking home less, I think governments of all stripes have a duty to ensure absolute value for the taxpayer of this country. And the allegations are serious. It's ongoing. And I think the best practice is to end our relationship with we formally. So there, there's another group that is now out. Uh, let me bring in Bruce McDonald. He is the CEO of Imagine Canada, a charitable organization that assists charities and nonprofits. Bruce, thanks for taking the time today. Appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Um, before we get to the bigger issue here, when you hear Stephen Lecce and you hear, I think it was RBC and a bunch of others that have now pulled their funding, is we as a charity, is it toast? Oh, uh, well, I mean, I can't speak to that. I uh, I don't know enough about the internal operations, the financial strength. I mean, they've announced that they're looking at uh, kind of going back to their roots and what that might mean. So I think really time will tell. The reason I ask is because I remember back in the 80s, and some people listening can go back this far now, um, when a lot of money was being raised for the Ethiopian famine, which was one of the huge stories of the of the 80s. And it may have even been the high point of charitable giving, I'm not really sure, but it certainly was at the front of people's minds because of Live Aid and We Are the World and all that stuff. But at, at some point, there were some suggestions made, Bruce, that by some people, that you know what, some of this money isn't getting where it's supposed to. It's caught up in administration or it's being taken by... African dictators or blah, blah, blah. People want to believe if they are going to be giving their money somewhere, people desperately want to believe that that money is going where it's supposed to go, correct? Absolutely, because for us, I mean, trust is at the heart of the relationship between charities and nonprofits and the community and the public. And it's it's whether uh, people and individuals or companies or organizations trust charitable entities enough to donate their hard-earned money or their time as volunteers. And so ensuring that there is a, a positive connection between our sector and the community at large is critically important to the future of charities and nonprofits. There are a number of groups like yours that look at charities and, and try to help people figure out what charities are good ones to put money to and which ones have more problems or have more questions. What is the guideline? How do you know? I mean, you can go to these sites, I suppose, but how do you know if where you're giving your money is getting the money to where you want it to go? Well, I I think like anything else, you have to be an educated, in a sense, consumer. In this case, you you would be a donor. Um, There's so many organizations across so many different cause and mission areas that really taking a few minutes to do some homework and say, are organizations posting their financial statements? Are they showing who their boards of directors are? Do they have reports about the impacts of their programs? They can even go further. I mean, imagine Canada on behalf of the sector runs a, an accreditation program where we, we have a set of standards that organizations can work toward that demonstrate the highest levels of good governance, transparency, and accountability. Those are things that donors can look for, but nothing can beat a little bit of time to say, what are the causes I care about? What are the organizations in that space? And how am I going to be comfortable making that contribution? I, I suppose it's a little disappointing that we have to do that. We have to do that now. You would like you would like to be able to believe that if it's a charity and if I'm giving my money, they're doing with it the right thing all the time. But I, I believe you're right that it probably is a wise idea to do a little digging. Yeah, well, I, you know, for sure. And I think one of the things that I think is worth mentioning is that you know part of our concern is that the the very intense focus that has had more of a negative slant towards a particular organization might color the perception of the overall sector. I mean, there's 80,000 exactly. registered charities, half of whom don't have any staff, 
And one of the great things about the charitable model is that there's many checks and balances in place. The fact that organizations do publish reports um, that are transparent and accountable. The fact that volunteers from the community are actually the people who sit on boards of directors. So there's oversight there. So it, it's, it's a model that's worked for a very long time. It's, you know, our, our real concern right now is that as we look at about three quarters of charities reporting that donations are down um, during this pandemic time, that ensuring that those services are available for Canadians when they need them is vitally important. And you have something else. I, I think all charities now, not just in Canada, but in around the world, has something else that it's fighting against now as well. And it's not necessarily a bad thing, but you look at something like a GoFundMe or something that people can do online. It functions essentially as a charity. I don't think that it is a charity, um, but people will hear about an issue, often a very sad story, and decide they want to put their money there. And people have limited uh, a limited pie. And so you start putting some of your charity or giveaway money there, and that now can't go to charities. It, it, there's a lot of com- com- uh, competition right now. Yeah, and certainly things like uh, GoFundMe or other crowdfunding sites are instruments that registered charities use, but as well, people can donate directly to other people. I mean, my perspective on this is that we should celebrate generosity in this country. And whether an individual feels like their expression of generosity is a donation of time as a volunteer to an organization or money to a registered charity, or they do something with individuals, that all of those things are good for our communities because our communities are better when we have organizations and groups like that in place so that neighbors help neighbors. But Bruce, would I be wrong in suggesting that something has changed a little bit in the last little while, and that is that people want to People want to feel something when they give their money. They want to feel like the, it's not just about giving the money because, you know, I, I know I should contribute something to charity. You want to have an emotional connection to the thing you're giving. I'm not sure that was always the case. Yeah, and I, I would say that you're right. That there's, I, I think there's been a shift, and I've been working in this sector quite a while. I think there's been a shift to um, supporting institutions, to supporting causes. And I think to your point around feeling, people want to understand What's the impact? What's the difference? What are the stories? What are those compelling stories of difference that my contribution is making? And so I, I want to hear about the people or the animals or, or whatever, or the environment, whatever that cause is. I really want to know what the difference is um, that I've helped propel forward. That changes, though, how charities have to fundraise and how they have to present their story. It, it, it certainly does. I think it's really becoming much more, uh, to your point, story-focused backed up by good data, and presented in a way that really connects directly with people. Because I don't think that individuals now just simply want to give to an institution. They want to make a difference. They want to see how that difference is made. And so organizations have to change their their fundraising strategies, their communication strategies to really keep pace with this change. Bruce McDonald, the CEO of Imagine Canada, which is an organization that assists charities and nonprofits. Bruce, thanks for the time today. I appreciate it. Thanks very much and have a great day. Uh, really hope, by the way, uh, really hope that what's been going on and again, whether it's political or not political or whether you're in favor or not, or fighting yes or no, whatever, that this does not affect people's willingness to give to charities. Really hope because, you know, you would hate to think that any kind of situation political, as I say, or otherwise would cut into what people will give to help other people. Let's take a break. Back after this. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. If you sat and watched the Leaf game the other night, the Arkells' new song may have been the highlight of the evening. (laughs) Not exactly the Leafs' greatest performance of this century. Uh, Some players in particular, a little... Well, we'll give them the benefit of the doubt. We'll say they were rusty after being off since March, but oh boy. That was um, that was not ideal. In fact, I have family. Their two favorite teams are the Leafs and the Canucks, and they sat down to watch a doubleheader on Sunday night. And in two games, they got to cheer for exactly zero goals from their two teams. Yeah, it was um, it was ugly. But about 90 to 85 minutes from now, the Leafs will be on the ice. It's a weird time, a weird four o'clock start time for the Maple Leafs. They are going to try to pull even in their series with the Columbus Blue Jackets, who are to hockey, I think, what, I don't know, 
try to come up with a good metaphor. They, I mean, they they are the the take the Mona Lisa and splash a bucket of dark paint on it and just splatter it. That, that's kind of what the Columbus Blue Jackets are. There's nothing beautiful about it, but boy, it sure covers everything up and 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 seems to be effective. Anyway, enough of me. Uh, one of the guys who we missed hearing his voice on the game. I don't know when the last time was we didn't hear Paul Hendricks talking on a Leaf game. It's got to be, oh, geez, 22 years, I think, is the exact amount of time. Paul Hendricks, formerly, once upon a time of CHCH, then of Leaf TV for many years. Paul joins us now. Paul, how are you? Very good, Scott. Thanks. Uh, you know, you're describing that Columbus team and a team that comes to mind, although not exactly playing the same way, the 95 New Jersey Devils, who just snuffed. Yeah the heck out of the middle and god forbid if you don't score the opening goal then that team gets to play the way they want to play and i think it's imperative today that uh toronto does score the first goal and i think they've got enough talent on the team to get that done and and the optics change i mean if nick robertson scores on that nice pass from casperi captain uh, and ifs or buts, but if he does score, it's a different outlook. And, and uh, I, you know, I really like the way Toronto was able to play, uh, especially given how well their goaltender played. And I know he's being knocked for the so-called soft goal, but the fact of the matter is he gave them a chance to win that hockey game, and uh, the players up front weren't able to respond. Now, full credit to John Tortorella's team. Uh, they took out Tampa a year ago in four consecutive games. This is a well-coached very good hockey club, especially from the back end. And uh, it's going to be a challenge for this Maple Leaf team. There's no doubt about it. I still believe the progress and the process to get to where they want to get is still a few years away. And and this is going to be another lesson, whether they win this series or not. Um, But uh, uh, full credit to to Columbus. Uh, I still think we're in for a hell of a hockey game here today, though. Well, let's let's get into some of that in a second. First, I want to ask you this, though, Paul. When was the last time you watched a Leaf game from your couch? <laughs> I haven't. You know, I I, I I I just my brother-in-law asked me the same thing the other uh, the other day. He, he texted me. I maybe 1994 uh, because so, I did my we started our coverage on CHCH back in the fall of 1995, but. Uh, it's been a, a good couple of decades, uh, not at a particular game, home or away, and it was it was different. I'll tell you, it still feels different. It's going to have to feel different for a while, just given uh, all those number of games uh, on, on, on both sides of the border, uh, having been able to watch the release in every single game played, uh, certainly, uh, certainly going to be different. Well, there's something, I mean, look at, we, we've all done this where you've worked at something for so long and then mm-hmm. maybe something you enjoy and you get to just do it for pleasure. Now it's almost hard to figure out how to do that because you're, you're used to working. Yeah. And that means going to practices every day, uh, traditionally getting a Sunday off. The team doesn't usually play Sunday, but the odd time we would travel, uh, and the grind of the treadmill that is from training camp in mid-September to whenever that season ends and usually culminates in rookie development camp the first week of July after the draft. It's, uh, it's 10 months of continual, continual routine. And, and you're right, to sit back and, and, and be able to watch it uh, via television, not from a press box or via Zamboni area if I was hosting one of our networks, uh, you're right, Scott. It's uh, totally, totally different, but uh, transition is part of life. And uh, the, the better one is able to handle that transition, mm. the better they are going to be moving forward. Uh, wasn't easy the other night. Won't be easy watching on this afternoon as well. Um, but you get to be a little more critical, I guess, and, and sort of look at it from a different perspective now being a little remote, uh, removed from, from the core that I was once a part of for better than two decades. I mean, I know you've touched on this, but you have been there for for a number of years. You're not an old man. Um, What was the thought process? Why why make the decision now to, and again, I don't even know if the word is retire, but whatever the word that you're going to use is, why now? Yeah, maybe step aside is better. My wife has been through some health challenges the last five years, and Things are going well right now, and uh, without getting too specific, but they've they've been well documented. Uh, just that she's doing well. I want to spend a little more, not a little more, a lot more time with her. Uh, and I just wasn't ready to handle uh, another ten to twelve months of 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 what is 
covering a hockey club as closely as I was, um, just given the good fortune we've been given health-wise and take advantage of what is going on right now. So it wasn't easy to do. Uh, I'm, I'm 64 in October, so I'm not a young, young guy, but mentally uh, and I'm in pretty decent shape. Uh, I can still go a long way. I've got a lot of gas left in the sure. tank. But I just think for both Alicia and myself, this was the right time to, to make this decision and, and move forward. This probably wouldn't surprise you, Paul, but there's an awful lot of people around here who would be listening right now who still think of you as that guy from CHCH. You were on loan to Leafs TV, but you were the CHCH guy. Yeah, well, that's a compliment. And, uh, you know, we, I was there for almost 17 years. And, you know, that first broadcast, wow. December 5th, 1981, uh, alongside Norm Marshall and um, Eddie Doyle and a few others that I got to share that weekend to anchor desk with and then getting an opportunity to move uh, Monday to Friday uh, at 6 o'clock. And, of course, uh, university uh, sports and, and all that went with CHCH back in those days. Uh, it was truly a family feel uh, working there on Caroline Street and in Jackson. And, and you know, I think back to it, uh, both my kids were born at St. Joseph's in, in Hamilton. My wife was educated at medical school at McMaster. Um, we owe so much to the city of Hamilton. And uh, I, I think what, what stands out for me, uh, given all that time at CHCH, was just family. And, of course, that transcended not only to Hamilton, but the rest of the Golden Horseshoe. Uh, and, 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 and you really felt like you were part of a big, big community. And, and to be thought of as the CHCH guy still after all those years. And it's, it's been since September 25th, 1998, that I signed off at Channel 11. Uh, it still just feels like yesterday as well. So it's nice to still be remembered uh, the way you just described it. I hate to point this out, but you signed off from CHCH about a month or two after I arrived in Hamilton at the Spectator. I'm, I'm hoping True. that was not the cause of you leaving. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. no. Do you remember you know any? Yeah, I do. And, you know, it's, it's, wow, time flies, doesn't it, Scott? And And you, of course, you know, the Spectator and, uh, you know, getting a chance a couple of weeks ago to talk with Steve Melton, uh, a dear friend who I haven't seen a lot of as of late, but we go back so long and, and the relationship uh, amongst, the, you know, our Hamilton media, you know, Spectator, uh, some of, you know, the CHML, the radio stations and, and their good friends uh, at CHCH. Uh, I, I thought of us as a nice, tight knit community, obviously competitive in terms of breaking stories and all that went with it. But all of us uh, down at the Hamilton Press Club, you know, just uh, below the, the hall of the Football Hall of Fame, uh, it was good to get together, uh, have a beverage, uh, talk business, talk community, and, and, and get to rub shoulders with some legends of uh, our trade uh, on a regular basis down there. Those are fun, fun times that I do remember well. Well, and when you say legends, I mean, when you arrived at CHCH around that time, uh, um, you said Norm Marshall already, uh, mm -hmm. Dick Beddows would still have been there, correct, at that time? Well, yeah, he's the guy that hired me, and, and I was up in Sault Ste. Marie uh, for a little over two years, and I, I was a best man at a friend's wedding in Belleville, and I remember, lo and behold, a couple of days later, dropping all the tuxedos off at uh, the groom's parents' place, and uh, Clark's dad said to me, how comfortable are you in Sault Ste. Marie? And I said, I really like it up there. I'm, I'm really comfortable. He said, well, it's time to move on. And uh, a week later, I started sending out tapes, Windsor, London, uh, uh, Hamilton, Peterborough, City TV, and CJOH even had an interview with late Brian Smith. And uh, uh, three months later, I get a call, 1230 at night. It's Dick Beddows uh, calling me after he'd gotten off the air and putting cassettes and slides away. And he said, by the way, you know, would you like the job? And I thought it was a gag and I was about to hang up on him. And he literally said, well, do you want the job or not? And then I realized it was Dick and he was serious. And, and uh, that was November of, of uh, 81. And uh, to get a chance to come down to Hamilton and, and join that group with Dan McLean, Connie Smith, Matt Hayes was hired a month after I joined on. He was January of 1982. Uh, Fred Anderton, Kathy Renwald, uh, and Tom Sherrington. I mean, I can list all these names, Stan Keys. It was a, a real family atmosphere given uh, where we were um, on, on Caroline Street in an old red brick home, uh, having to bring our cassettes and whatnot up to the Jackson Street Studios, uh, just up diagonally across the corner. Um, it, it was uh, it was. It was an absolute blast uh, and a cornerstone 
foundation piece of my career that uh, I'll never forget. Beto certainly played the intimidating guy on TV. Was he with the staff? Were you, when you showed up, were you scared to death of him? Yeah, I was. And, <laughs> and you know, and I'll be honest, uh, you know, we had a bit of a run in an early, I'm going to say, well, I know when it was during the Sarajevo Olympics, I can cross index that to 1984. He thought I needed a little more time in news. And I, and I don't know what the problem was, but I, uh, I confronted him right then and there and told him I'd work too damn hard to get this far. And this is what I wanted to do. And if you wanted to take it up further with management, Frank Donardis and Doug Gale to be my guest, well, that never happened. Um, but Dick and I you know, were able to uh, make amends, uh, especially later on, uh, just prior to him passing away. Uh, so this is going back, I would think, in 1991. And I was very grateful for that. Uh, but he was one of the reasons why I wanted to get into this business in the first place, uh, watching he and Tom uh, perhaps, Phil, the last four to five minutes on the 11 o'clock news on Channel 11, Monday to Friday, was just true, true entertainment to mm. see these two veteran journalists go at it and, and with a comical approach. Uh, it, it was one of the reasons why I wanted to get in. So to be hired by Dick and get a chance to work alongside him was a, a real privilege, despite some of the differences that we did have uh, for a short time while I was there. Any of the young staff, just as a gag, hide his fedora someday before he went on the air just to see how he'd react? Well, no, we would never do that. But, you know, <laughs> but McMaster Engineering certainly had no problem doing it. And, and I'll recall oh, they? <laughs> a homecoming game in the early 80s and Dick wearing his um, uh, velour burgundy hat and fedora. Anyway, <laughs> it was stolen on air during a game because Dick worked sidelines. I would replace him a year later. So this is probably 1982. I'm working weekend that night and sports and I get a call and it's from the McMaster Engineering Department or at least the, the, the students. We've got Dick's hat. Bring a case of beer to the 200 <laughs> meter starting mark at, the, at, at McMaster and come along. Well, I said, you can keep the damn hat. But uh, that's my one story going back with Dick's Burgundy Fedora. Uh, yeah, they were, they were very brave. I don't know that I would have had the, um, the cojones to steal a hat from him. You might, you might have had something bad happen to you. Um, yeah. did, did you. When you finally left, when you decided to move along, was it just that the lure of pro hockey was there, or was there something else to it? Well, you know, I'd almost, it was 16 years, 10 months that I was there. I got an opportunity from Ron Harrison Sr. to, to join Molson Sports and Entertainment and be the host of all midweek Leaf games. Uh, the money was certainly uh, a bit better, and, uh, and it was an opportunity at my career to, 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 to push uh, the challenge, uh, my talents, my confidence level. Uh, and although it was a bit of a risky venture, because I remember saying to my wife, because I started then in late September of, of uh, I guess that's full-time Leafs 98, that if I still have this job next December, then I'm going to consider myself very fortunate. Well, you get into one game, then you get into another, and then you get to finish out the season, and you realize, hey, I can do this. And uh, uh, it, was, it was a nervous time for me, especially in the fall, September of 1998, when I did leave uh, but the opportunity it was just too good to pass up. And I, I thought I'd pretty much done all I can do at Channel 11. So if I was to stay with this career uh, and still be challenged, I thought it was a good time to move on. And, and uh, Molson Sports and Entertainment provided me that opportunity. Paul, truthfully, though, did you expect from 98 until you would retire, whenever that was going to be, did you truthfully expect that you would probably be working and see one Stanley Cup? Or had you said, no, I don't really care. It's probably not going to happen because they haven't done it since 67. Well, you certainly hope so. And, and, and you, you know you get a couple of opportunities to get close. But you look around the league and, and just how hard to with a player like Steve Eisenman had to wait before they finally won their first Stanley Cup. Tampa's got a tremendous team and organization. They haven't won since 2004, but this current group has not won. Um, they're going to be interesting to watch this this summer is to see if they can maybe uh, get back there and finally win another championship. But it took Washington forever. It took St. Louis absolutely forever. So there's a patient uh, 
progress, a step that has to be acknowledged. And, and I think that's the case with the Leafs. But to get back, you, you always hoped uh, Leafs had a chance in 99 going uh, to the conference final. Uh, Buffalo certainly a better hockey club. And I thought Pat Quinn's teams again in, in the early 2000s, especially that group in 2002 that went again to the conference final, uh, they were just too banged up. And uh, it would have been interesting to get a crack at it, but it's an elusive, elusive chase, Scott. And uh, I just hope this current group, and I think this current group, with the addition of a player or two, is going to be very capable of getting it done. This is an exceptional hockey club. Um, whether it happens this summer or in a couple of springs from now, uh, I think they're going to be able to get it done. I would have loved a chance to have covered a Stanley Cup and a Stanley Cup champion. Uh, I was 10 the last time they won. I remember it mm. like yesterday. And uh, when and if that opportunity comes to at least watch it, uh, it's going to be a privilege, uh, even if I'm not a part of the uh, the coverage as I once was. See, Paul, I have I have been convinced. Now, after the first game, I'm not so sure I'm sticking by my, my prediction here, but I've been convinced that Murphy's Law insists that this be the year the Leafs win the Stanley Cup because for the first time there can be no fans, there could be no Stanley Cup parade, there could be no celebration. This would be the perfect time for a team that hasn't won with the fan base it does, that they finally get to win and then they don't get to celebrate. That's how Murphy's Law works. It would be ironic, wouldn't it? And, you know, we're watching that massive celebration with the Raptors last season. And, And I remember the Blue Jays parades. I still think if the Leafs are able to win this championship at some point, and hopefully soon, that they can outdo what the Raptors did in terms of the fan support. I don't know if there's enough room on Toronto streets, uh, but push COVID aside. And in the event that we're able to go back to the way it once was, uh, if the Leafs are able to win a championship, there wouldn't be much room in the core of the city, Toronto, for anything to move it would be that popular and the championship celebrated right across Canada. That is Paul Hendrick, a familiar voice. Again, if you've lived in this city for any period of time, you, um, you may remember him from Leaf TV, but you certainly remember him from CHCH. Uh, Paul, listen, uh, congratulations on the, again, not retirement, on the stepping aside and enjoy the game from your couch, even though it's weird. And uh, we will be hopefully talking to you soon. All right, Scott. Great to hear Ted Michaels as well. Another familiar voice and and face going back to my career in Hamilton. So all the best to all of you people in Hamilton as well. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.